one thing that is just productive to do is to be super observant of the people around you and think about what they do really well and what they don't do really well and kind of use every experience you have professionally as a learning experience, either positively or negatively. Welcome to Modern Business Operations, where we talk with leaders about how ops is adapting to our modern world. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Modern Business Operations, the top-ranked podcast in business operations and legal operations. I'm your host, Brianna Autry, and today I am joined by Steve Hufford, Senior Managing Director and COO at Raymond James Investment Banking. Hi, Steve. How you doing? Hello, Brianna. Nice to see you as well. Glad to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I've actually really been looking forward to this conversation because when you and I did our preliminary prep call before this, you had so many good candid tidbits for me. And, you know, we chatted for the whole time. And I was like, I wish I could just record this because it would have made an excellent podcast. So we're going to refine that conversation a little bit more for all of you. And Steve is just has an awesome career, so many great insights. So I'm really excited to have you here. Well, thank you. I was super excited too until you and I had a couple of technical difficulties in the month <laughs> heart rate up really high. So hopefully yeah. we do as well as we did in the prep call. Yeah, yeah. We'll get that mood back. That's just how these things go, you know. So today, the topic of our following the management line. Steve has a ton of experience, which we'll get into in a second in being a people manager. And he's going to talk about what that means and share some practical insights for all of you who are looking to become managers, are looking to advance in your careers, or simply looking for better ways to work. But before we get into all that, Steve, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a bit about how you got into your current role, what was your first role in ops, or how did you get into this field in general? Thank you for that, Brianna. And I'm super glad to be here with you guys today. Hopefully, it'll yield some value to folks. So career-wise, I've had a pretty indirect, maybe kind of wandering career. I don't have a very super distinct straight line career path. I graduated from law school at the University of Virginia in 1985. I took a very traditional approach. I went into the law business at a law firm. I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, and I went through the traditional path. I was an associate, a senior associate, ultimately a partner. And in that career path, I was managing transactions for corporate clients for the most part. To a large degree, merger and acquisition types of transactions and some degree IPOs. And I developed a bit of a specialty around technology transactions and in particular financial technology was an area that I spent a lot of time in. This is back in the 90s before fintech was really a thing. You were sort of representing banks and helping them initiate different kinds of technology transactions that they were doing back then. So that was sort of career version number one. The internet came along in the mid-90s, kicked up a lot of dust. There was a lot of opportunity. A former mentor of mine in the legal business convinced me to join him in a corporate development role that morphed over a little bit of time into an entrepreneurial role. So for the next eight to nine years of my career, after my legal career, I was, call it an operator, kind of like the second chair in an entrepreneurial operation. 
We were building small companies, often around the financial technology arena and building them up. I was leading the sales efforts around that, helping to raise capital, helping manage the technology operations. And then ultimately, we sold both of those businesses. So I had kind of an eight or nine year career in an entrepreneurial mode. Took a little bit of time off after that, was recruited by Raymond James to build a financial technology investment banking practice at the firm that I'm at right now. I did that starting in 2008, right about the time of the great financial crisis, which was an interesting time to enter the business from that perspective. Did that for several years. And then in late 2017, I was asked by my current boss and a guy who had been my partner in the development of that fintech practice to join him in helping to manage. He at that time was the head of investment banking. He now carries the title of president of global equities and investment banking. And I am his chief operating officer for purposes of helping to manage the investment bank. So really kind of four careers where I've sort of migrated from being a doer of deals to being an organizer of deals, to being a manager of deals, to being a manager of people who do deals. So maybe a natural migration, but that's kind of been the path. I'm curious, are you allowed to talk about any of the IPOs that you managed? I probably can today, but one that was actually probably kind of interesting because I was right in the middle of it was Earthlink back in the early internet days. Earthlink, of course, was one of the early internet service providers. And I was fortunate to be part of the team that took that one public and then made a number of different transactions along the way. It eventually wound up merging with a similar company called Mindspring here in Atlanta and sort of birthed itself that way. But yeah, that was a fun one because we got into our involvement with Earthlink probably in 94, 95, which would have been right about where the internet was sort of blossoming. And then we wrote it for quite a ways till it was a public company and then took a big investment from Sprint and then ultimately did that Mindspring deal. So that was a fun one. Nice. I love hearing about the early days of the internet. I won't share how old I was when that IPO happened, but... (laughs) Just out of diapers. <laughs> that could be embarrassing for me. I will tell you this, this is a funny digression. I won't use too much time up on this, but I remember my first time on the internet was literally in the lobby of Earthlink's office in Pasadena, California. They had a computer terminal set up and you could get on and go on the internet. So I did right there. And it was like, wow, this is interesting. That would have been 94, maybe. So wow. I'm dating myself pretty badly now. And I realized that. You're also a part of history. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So I want to talk about your management and your time as a manager and lessons you learned. So management is a topic that's covered a lot. When I ask people to come on the show, they usually say, you know, I'm happy to talk about culture management, et cetera. And a lot of the times I say no, because it's sort of an oversaturated topic. But in this case, I think some of the things that you were willing to share made me really interested to talk about this topic with you specifically. And there's also a reason that people chat about management so much. It's because people are often promoted into management positions because they're great individual contributors, right? But being an individual contributor, it has nothing to do with being a manager at the end of the day. And so what are some of the best management lessons you've learned that other people who maybe are great IC that are looking to get promoted or are recently promoted individual contributor that sort of want to learn some of these skills? Yeah, so this was an interesting question and got me thinking a lot about, okay, how did I land here? Like, how did that happen? I'll start by saying I don't have any formal management training, right? I went to law school. I don't have an MBA. 
I didn't fast track in some management program at a bank or telecom company. I know they have a lot of those fast track programs. I never did any of that. I was always, as you say, an individual contributor. Now, I did wind up over time running decent sized teams to manage M&A transactions typically. So I had experience interacting with people at large scale and guiding them and giving direction and that sort of thing. But again, I have really literally zero formal management training. And I thought a little bit about, okay, how did I get here? And I'd say a couple things, and then I'll go through what some of the management lessons that I've derived are, or at least a, maybe a process that I think about when I'm making a decision. But one of the things that I think has been really important for me in terms of growing into my role is the effect that mentors have had on me over the years. One of my early mentors, I remember telling me, this is again, a long ways back. This would have been way back in the eighties when I was a brand new associate at a law firm mentioned to me that one thing that is just productive to do is to be super observant of the people around you and think about what they do really well and what they don't do really well and kind of use every experience you have professionally as a learning experience, either positively or negatively. And I remember taking that to heart very early on. And I think I've been a pretty careful observer of the people around me ever since then. And in that guise, I've learned a lot just by watching what other people do. And I've also had the good fortune of having had at least three really good mentors in my career. We'll talk about that separately if you want. But that's led me to a series of observations maybe that I'd lay out for you about how I go about making decisions. And maybe one more little predicate here. A lot of what I do has to do at some level with resource allocation. Team A wants to use these resources and Team B wants to use them. Who gets them? That's probably the simplest articulation of it. But I'm sort of a judge or a resource allocator or an arbitrator, if you will, between competing claims on a scarce set of resources. So that's a lot of the paradigm I work in. Not the only one, but that's kind of a common one. And so I thought a lot about how do you make good decisions when you've got two parties there and one's going to win, one's going to lose, and you're the bad guy who has to decide at the end of the day. You know, you've got to manage it by making a decision. I'd say a few things. Like I thought about a series of rules that are kind of a progression for how I think about that. The first one is to come prepared and really do the legwork to know what all the arguments on side A and side B are. I never want to be sitting in front of the participants in this debate because a lot of times we'll all be on a call together. We might all be in a meeting. And I don't want to be in that meeting and be surprised by a fact that I had not thought about prior to that meeting. I want to make sure I go in with as complete as I can get understanding of what the facts are. Secondly, I want to be transparent and honest with all parties. I find that in a management role, it never helps to marginalize the truth or play the margins of honesty. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to spill the beans and tell you everything that I know about the backdrop for a certain decision. Like There's some things that the participants in the decision are not entitled to know, but I'm going to be super honest and transparent with them about the decision-making factors that lead me to conclude a certain way rather than another way. And I think even when people lose that decision, when they're not the prevailing party in that decision, they appreciate the fact that you've been completely transparent with them about how you thought about it. They may not agree, but they can appreciate the transparency. 
Third thing I would say, Brianna, is I try to be decisive. I don't want to hem and haw and allow a decision to draw out far longer than it needs to. At some point, we just need to make a call and move on. Again, it may not make everyone happy, but you've got to make a decision. The fourth rule will sound possibly contradictory with the third rule, but I don't think it is. And that is, this is one that the fellow I work for today is really good at, and that is what I'll call finding the third way. And what I mean by that is when you have two participants in front of you competing for the same set of resources, there's A's view and there's B's view, and A and B are assuming that you're going to pick A or pick B. And something I've learned, again, from the guy I work for today is look for the third way. Look for the synergy between A and B that lead to C and give you a better outcome. As I've worked with him over a long period of time, I've come to realize that in most situations, there is a third way. It's just that people are not really thinking about it or gravitating towards it when the decision starts or when the topic starts. So I think that's an interesting point. You can still be decisive and find the third way. They're not really trade-offs with each other. And then the last thing I would say is follow up on the decision. Let's say I didn't find the third way and I went with A instead of B. Following up with B two weeks later to say, hey, how's it going? I know that decision didn't come out the way that you were hoping it would, but I'm interested to see if the experience is different from what you thought it might be. And that's, by the way, that's particularly useful when you've found the third way is to follow up and say, hey, we looked at it in a different way when we came to a decision. How is that working for you now? And again, that sense that you care and that you're willing to follow up and you didn't just make a decision and you left it and the pieces are on the floor and you know it's up to you all to pick it up and figure it out. I think people appreciate that as well. So maybe one overarching principle, and then I'll pause and let you ask another question, is just the importance of being relational with people in a role like this, particularly professional people. You know, investment banking is populated by very talented, very driven people who are very career-centric in the way they think about the world, conveying to them that you care about the decisions that were made and you're willing to follow up on them and alter the course if need be. Sometimes you hear, C is really working poorly. Can we come back together and think about doing it maybe slightly differently again? Being open to do that, I think is important in certain circumstances as well. This episode is brought to you by Tonkin. Tonkin is the operating system for business operations, providing businesses with the building blocks to orchestrate any process with no code or change management required. Contact us at Tonkin.com to learn how you can build complex processes fast. And if you're interested in staying up to date on all things business operations, join the AdaptiveOps community at operations.community. I've been taking notes while you've been chatting. I've got be observant, collect mentors, watch resource allocation, be prepared, be transparent, be decisive, find the third way. And when you do follow up and then finally be relational. Yeah. I didn't think of it quite in that list, but that's a good list. I think that works in a lot of different settings. I'm an IC and it works for me in many ways. You know, I'm pulling stuff from this as well. So that's super helpful. A lot of our audience is comprised of folks across all industries, but we skew a little technical, like automation focused. You've worked in sort of more established industries over the course of your career. So what lessons would you share with like younger, newer companies with less management experience or size overall? So sort of the more entrepreneurial versions, 
Yeah. And again, I had a stint where I worked in an entrepreneurial environment for a while, so I'm, I'm at least familiar with it. I thought that was a really interesting question. And by the way, in our investment banking practice, we work with a lot of great entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial businesses. So it's a relevant question for us too, even though we are more of an established organization. I'd say the, the thing that I thought about when I was thinking about those entrepreneurial companies and the ones I worked in and the ones we serve is that they're usually characterized by a high degree of passion that inevitably comes from the founder. The founder has a vision. He or she has a baby. That's the baby. There's a lot of things that are great about the baby. And a great founder is really good at bringing people to his or her vision and causing folks to get excited about it and run in that direction. So most of these entrepreneurial organizations, I think, are really characterized by a high degree of passion. This was true in a couple of the organizations that I worked in, so maybe that's why it resonated for me. But to me, the lesson in that or the flip side of that that's worth noting is the value of discipline and steady plotting. Like a lot of times, passion leads to a lot of energy, but also a lot of movement and tacking with the wind and going some different directions. One of the other long-term lessons of my career is just the value of patience and steady plotting and not giving up on something too quickly, sticking with it. You can use an exercise analogy, right? The first day of exercise doesn't do you a whole lot of good, but the 30th day of exercise really has a lot of value because of the cumulative effect of those deposits over time. I think that's really true. And I think, again, in my own personal experience, early stage to be really high on the passion, but not place enough value on the discipline associated with just steady plotting and continued deposits. That was kind of one of the things. And that, by the way, I think is a value that someone in sort of a COO-ish type of a role can bring to it is to be a bit of a counterbalance to that entrepreneurial enthusiasm and remind the organization of the value of sticking with the program and making those deposits day in and day out. I love that analogy. It's like a startup is doing like two hours of insanely intense cardio once a week, but the CEO comes right. in and says, actually, let's do 45 minutes a day. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <You know>? exactly. <laughs> Steady deposits kind of works in, I'm going to say, almost every area of life, but it is a discipline and we're all disciplined to one degree or another and in different ways. When I find myself wheel spinning, I often think, okay, I should get back to the discipline of making the steady deposits day after day and trying to see where this thing goes over a longer period of time, as opposed to frenetic wheel spinning in the moment. Yeah, 100%. So I'm going to continue asking Steve questions and chatting with him, but we do have a live audience listening in. So if any of you in the live audience have questions for Steve, please feel free to start jotting them down now in the chat in Bevy, and we'll address them as they come in. So I want to talk also about sort of like the progression of this. So a smaller org probably won't have a COO, larger org probably will. So when should someone bring in a COO at what stage and why would they do that? And what does that look like? That's a good question. And one of the more challenging, Brianna, of the ones you had on your map, in part because I think it depends a lot contextually as to where the company is. But if I kind of went back to some of the other things I said earlier, I think COOs kind of emerge role-wise, if I can say it that way, for two reasons, I think. One is the organization has gotten big enough and complex enough, not that it's huge, but it has grown enough 
that it has resource allocation issues, right? You're running into, we can either code this project or we can code that project, but we can't code both projects. And so someone needs to sit in the middle of that and arbitrate that. Obviously, in a technology organization, a product's on that and the management team's going to have influence on that. But getting to a place where someone is a decision maker around how should these scarce resources be used usually I think means that someone operating somewhat like a COO, you don't have to call them that, but someone who's performing that kind of a function becomes necessary. The other aspect of a COO, again, it's a generic term and it has a lot of different connotations, I think. So what I'm about to say may not be true in every instance, but I think in a lot of cases, the COO has to have a very trusting and trustful relationship with the CEO because the COO really operates as the CEO's emissary to the rest of the organization and in a lot of instances outside of the organization. And so there's got to be a lot of trust there, an ability for the COO not to necessarily go beyond the scope of what the CEO might endorse. In the role that I have here, I just have to always realize I'm sort of speaking not just on my own sometimes. So I need to be cautious about that to preserve that trust relationship. And I think these kinds of CEO, COO relationships really work best when that trust exists and both parties know what to expect from the other one. And there's just a natural seamlessness to, oh, I got this issue. Let me go take it for you and spare you the burden of that. 100%. Thank you for answering that question. I was really curious about that. And then moving into the future, what do you think the COO title looks like in the future? Unsure times, recession, et cetera, seems like a really vital role right now. So what do you think the future looks like for the position? Again, another interesting question. I think it's the kind of role where you have a sense of competing resources across a firm, a person who is trusted by the CEO and trusted, frankly, by the organization as well to make wise decisions. And again, it may not be decisions that everyone likes, but they believe that you're thoughtful about it and you're discerning and you're transparent, all of those things we talked about earlier. I think that means there's sort of always a place for that, whether it's called COO or something else. I would agree with you that one of the things that if I look long-term in my career, like I started in the work world back in 1985, and here it is, 2023, and I'm still hacking away at it every day. One of the things I've learned about the business world and the financial world in that time frame is that there seems to be greater and greater volatility in the world. Like it used to be that these volatile downturns would happen every 10 years, and then it seemed like every eight years, and it just seems to accelerate and the volatility, the distance between the top and the bottom of the swing seems to grow greater with each one of these. I think that's a reflection of the growing complexity and interconnectedness of the world. And the times we live in are pretty volatile. 2023 feels a lot different to me than 1993 felt across a whole number of dimensions. So I do think that What's implicit in your question, Brianna, is are we living in a more volatile world and does the COO role become more or less important in a volatile world? I think it probably becomes more important just because a good COO, I think, is a bit of a ballast for the organization, a centering point between this vision and that vision. Hopefully a good COO is sort of a discerning individual who can 
build consensus around something that will work for a lot of people as opposed to something that leans heavily in one direction or another. So I think the position remains valid, remains legit for a long time to come. My gut is it probably is more important as a tethering vehicle. And my other working hypothesis would be that the volatility that we see out there in the world probably isn't going away anytime soon. You can kind of see that in the news every night, right? Something else is happening that's throwing the world a curveball that we've now got to cope with in a new way. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I do think the CEO role will continue to be and will become more important. So we're running short on time, but we do have two questions from our live audience. One from Aurelian. He wants to know, with the hyper on chat GPT, what is your take on how AI could potentially transform the COO role? That is a hard question for me. I've played around with it a little bit. It is kind of amazing. There's a sense in which it's reading your mind and writing something better than you can write it. And so I think when a new technology comes out and does that, it's sort of stunning for everyone, which is, I think, the reaction that we've all collectively had. Lots of people have thought more deeply about it than I have. My overriding reaction to the whole thing is maybe a little bit counterintuitive or maybe a bit old school or maybe just reflects the fact that I'm an old guy and that's the way I prefer to think about it. But the way I think about it is it's an interesting technology. I'm sure it has lots of applications for maybe some of the more rote tasks that get done in the business world day after day. But my gut also tells me that at least it'll be a long time before it incorporates wisdom and discernment into an algorithm. That seems to be the thing that distinguishes human intelligence from machine intelligence. And so my gut is that there will be plenty of opportunity for smart, talented people to continue to serve in roles like this, not just this role, but there's a lot of different business opportunities that replace some work that's done in the workplace. But intelligent people who know how to exercise wisdom and discernment and judgment and be highly relational, those skills strike me as not going away anytime soon. And so it strikes me that the overall effect of it may be to replace some of the stuff that maybe machines can do, give the rest of us opportunity to dedicate our minds to higher order tasks that may lead to more interesting developments over time. Yeah, same. And it definitely helps with the rote tasks. So we have another question from our live audience from Bruno. What advice would you give an aspiring ops leader slash COO? Great way to end it. I would say... Being observant, you know, watching other people, being self-aware and being self-aware, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to managing people or to conducting yourself well in the workplace to know the impact you're having on other people. I was once given a lesson and, and the essence of the question that was asked in the lesson was to ask people what it feels like to be on the other side of you. It's a very provocative question. What does it feel like to be on the other side of me? It takes a lot of courage to ask people who work for you that question because you could get a pretty raw answer back. But it's an interesting way of thinking about it because if you're conscious of that, of being willing to ask that question at some point, then it means you're super conscious about the effects you're having on other people. You've got a high degree of self-awareness. So I think building self-awareness in addition to being observant 
And then the third thing I would say is look for opportunities to both be mentored and to mentor. Now, that word gets glorified maybe a little too much. People think about, oh, I've got to have a mentor. You know, I've got to have a designated person. I don't really think about it that way. I think of it more as an activity rather than a person, right? And the activity is the one of being trained up in a skill of some sort. And I think for a lot of budding ops leaders and COOs, you want to maximize your learning opportunities by being observant of others and getting that mentoring in just kind of a natural way. And then I would emphasize that it's important not to just breathe it in, but to breathe it back out, meaning practice mentoring others. Again, it doesn't have to be, I'm your mentor, I'm going to have coffee every Tuesday morning at 830. It doesn't need to be that. It more needs to be I saw that once in my career. Let me give you two cents on how I would think about that. Just being in that mode, one of the things that we cultivate at Raymond James is something that we call a culture of mentoring, which is that everybody should be on the lookout to be helping somebody else out or building in them a skill that I've already built in myself. Just if we're constantly looking for those opportunities, then we're creating a culture of mentoring comes a really fun, interesting learning place to work. And that's the environment that we'd like to create ultimately. I think that that's great and a great way to end it. And as a final question, how can people get in touch with you if they want to follow up after this? Sure. Steve.Hufford at RaymondJames.com. Be patient with me. I sometimes have more email than I need, but I'll do my best to circle back to everybody. Awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. As always, I really appreciate you taking the time and I really appreciate your knowledge. Thank Thank you. you. It was fun. Thanks, Brianna. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening in. I'm your host, Brianna Autry. Make sure to join the Adaptive Ops community at operations.community to chat further with folks like Steve, et cetera, and have a great rest of your day, everyone. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Business Operations. You can see the show notes and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at tonkin.com slash mbopod. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. 